Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just uh, come before you now seeking your spirit, that your spirit would speak to hearts. It wouldn't be the words of man, but it would be your words. Lord, I come even somewhat confused with many questions. But Lord, you are the answer. And I would just pray that you would, uh, this morning, bestow on us your wisdom. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, uh, <clears throat> those of you that attend here know that we sometimes do series. We'll, we'll maybe do uh, uh, books, or we just got done looking at a few kings. And then, and then we kind of hit a period, especially in the summer, uh, when uh, there's a lot of coming and going and vacations. We do minister's choice, we call it. And, uh, you know, which normally ends up being a topical message. And one of the, the things I struggle with as I prepare messages, God, is this, is this your truth? Or is this my opinion? And it's easy to, to seek out uh, verses, scripture verses that would maybe support my opinion and then make a message out of it. And that is, we are all subject to that. And so this morning I would ask you, in fact, you may leave with questions because the, my whole message this morning is, prompting, is prompted by questions that, that I'm struggling with, seeking God's counsel, the, the entire counsel of God's word. We need to look at not just pick here and there. You know, it's been said that the only thing constant in life is change. I sometimes think of my, my grandpa Cook. He was born in 1900. 1900 years after Jesus. And yet the lifestyle he was born into wasn't, it was, it was there was some technology like steam trains and telegraph. But basically, his lifestyle was not that much different than Christ. Walked, or a horse, no running water, no cars, no radio, no TV. And in his life, he went from that to seeing man, watching on his color TV, seeing man landing on the moon. And that's ancient history now. The only thing constant is change. You know, July 4, 1776, the Continental Congress wrote the Declaration of Independence. And in that declaration, they acknowledged the Creator who bestowed the rights on the people that was beyond and above and authority over the government. They founded a nation on Judeo-Christian principles, acknowledging a creator. 
And I guess just for a, a moment of commentary, I would just warn, especially young people, you know, if all we look at is the mistakes and the shortcomings of someone in a marriage, in a church, in a government, in past uh, those that have gone before us, if we only dwell on the mistakes, we miss the blessings and the good. And I would just make a warning of not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, not to get so uh, come overcome with the dirty bathwater that you throw out the things that are most precious. I was born in 1957. I'm one of the old guys now. Can I just say, growing up, I never knew an atheist. I remember there was one girl in school whose parents were divorced. I know that at least one of my, if not several, my grade school teachers started the day out with the Pledge of Allegiance and a prayer to Almighty God. Billy Graham was a national hero. And generally believed that any sex outside of a marriage was wrong. And that's not that it wasn't taking place, but still the, the society deemed it wrong. And now I wake up July 4th, 2021. And if I don't celebrate Pride Month, I'm a hateful person. The only thing constant in life is change. And I guess I've been struggling, I've been wrestling with, as a follower of Jesus Christ, how do I live and interact in everyday life? Do I attend same-sex marriage? Do I bake a, if I'm a baker, do I bake a cake? Do I rent a house to same-sex couple? How do I interact with my co-workers that are gay or lesbian or transgender? My employer makes me go to sensitivity training. Now can I watch the NFL because they're the gay NFL? Can I send my kids to public school? How do I live? How do I live in this world as a follower of Jesus Christ? What has he called me to? And then Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, there's nothing new under the sun. That's what makes God's word relevant today. This isn't anything new. Maybe new for me. Maybe new for you, especially us older ones. It's not new to God. In Genesis 1 through 3, we have the creation and the fall. And as 
God ends his creation on day seven. He says, God's creation, this is very good. And what was very good? He had created male and female, different but complementary. He instituted marriage of a man and a woman with an indissolvable union of one flesh. And he commanded man to tend the garden, to work, to be productive. And I think most of us know the story that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And what was, what was the temptation? You can be like God. You can determine. You can know what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. You can be top dog. You can be your own authority. You can determine your own morality. And then the story is when things went bad, you blame somebody else. God, that woman you made, right there, two, two blames. The woman and God. Do we see that today? Anything new under the sun? You see, a number of years ago, man came up with this theory called evolution that eliminated a creator, a designer. So if we can eliminate a designer and creator, someone that actually knows right and wrong and has a plan for each one of us, who does that leave on top? Humans, right? Man. They're the authority. If there's no God, then humans are the authority. Man is the moral authority. As I observe, and I realize there's a lots of noise out there that sometimes isn't the majority. As I seek to, to know how then should I live, what should my attitudes and actions be, I see, I'll call it the church, I'll call it Christians, kind of taking two different approaches. The one is to embrace the LGBTQIA+. That was the latest one I got on Google. I was listening to a, a preacher on a podcast that uh, was defending same-sex marriage. And, you know, he used the Bible. It sounded really good. I mean, you know, aren't we supposed to be non-judgmental? Aren't we to show mercy and grace? Aren't we to include everyone? And use Scripture to defend that. But you know what? Satan used scripture to tempt Jesus, too. Because he sure left out in that podcast, he left out a lot of scripture, too. He ignored a lot of scripture. 
But Jesus ate with the publicans and sinners. He was accused of being one of them. Could somebody should point out scripture to me where Jesus went to the prostitute, to the tax collector, embezzler, to the sexually immoral people and said, just love me and your lifestyle's okay? Fine by me if you continue to go down your path just as long as you love me. Jesus died to those people. But you know what? The wages of sin is death, and his death paid for those sins. But you know what? He rose in victory over that sin. And he gave us the Holy Spirit so we can have victory over our sin. And then it seems like the other side is, let's attack. Let's condemn and attack and destroy. And maybe that comes from, if you're familiar with the Bible, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God wiped them off the face of the earth with fire and brimstone. And we think this sin is an abomination. We need to wipe it off the face of the earth. Ezekiel 16.46 points out that the, the sin of Sodom was pride and prosperous ease and lack of charity. Now, obviously, God didn't okay their immorality in Jude 7. He definitely talks about it. But the, the reason he wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah was to be an example for all who would choose an ungodly life. The, all that would choose to rebel against God. And somehow I think it is both wrong to embrace and somehow I think it is long, wrong to just attack and destroy. How then should I live? How then do I glorify Jesus Christ in our culture today? How many times have you ever influenced someone by attacking them, by degrading them, You just harden them, don't you? I'm hardened when somebody attacks me. I don't listen. It seems like that's the way of the world today. Attack rather than teach. Jesus sent his disciples out into the, wool, wool, into the world declaring that he was sending them out as sheep among wolves. In Matthew 10, 16. And he told them to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. James chapter 1, verses 14 
and 15. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, Scripture tells us that all men are tempted. We all are tempted the same, but with different desires. John MacArthur, in his commentary on his, on his study Bible, the phrase, his own, he says, this describes the individual nature of lust. It is different for each person as a result of inherited tendencies, environment, upbringing, and personal choices. But each person is tempted when he is lured and, and lured and enticed by his own desire. And when that desire, we allow that desire to, to manifest itself in our mind and in our heart, and we fantasize on it, and we dwell on it, and pretty soon we're acting on it. And it gives birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. But make no mistake, the different desires are not categorized as one is better than the other. God is not a respecter of sin. You know, statistics would tell us that in a room this size, there are several that struggle with same-sex desires, being attracted to the same sex. Can I tell you, you're no more broken than I am. We are born broken. And Christ came to heal. Christ came to put together, back together. And if I dwell on my desires and let them percolate, it will bring forth sin. Don't be afraid to share your struggles with someone. We're all in this together. So then how do we live? Nothing new under the sun. You know, in, the, in Acts chapter 17, and I believe I have time to read it, Paul is in Athens, kind of the center of Greek Greece, Greek philosophy and, and religion and culture. And I'm not an ancient history expert at all. But I knew, do know enough that this was not what we would consider a nice place. They didn't walk around doing wonderful things. 
There was temple prostitution. There was homosexual prostitution. They, they stood on human knowledge and philosophies. They, they partook in all kinds of sensual indulgence. Things that even our society today would deem bad and immoral. Things with young people. So how did Paul deal? Was he walked around Athens? I think we can learn from Paul's example. So Paul standing in the midst of the uh, Greek to me, Aeropagus, Aeropagus, I tried to get it right and I forget now. Said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I ha- as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So just as I've been studying this and, and thinking about this and, and put myself back in Paul's shoes of the culture that he was living in, all kinds of sensual indulgence, all kinds of philosophies and, and lifting up man as, as the ultimate knower of truth. It's interesting that he didn't attack them. Say, you horrible people, don't you see what you're doing? He actually kind of gave them a little praise. I see you're, I see you're religious. I see, I see you're, you know. But he pointed them to the true God, the authoritative God, the God almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing. Not someone that could be manipulated the creator of heaven and earth. 
verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Not a God that could be manipulated by man, could be formed by man, could be decided, influenced by man, but God, the Almighty And he made from one man every nation of mankind. Some of the translations say he, all the men from one blood. See, the, the Greeks thought themselves superior. They were the superior race than the barbarians, common people. And Paul is telling them the God of heaven and earth created us all one, one blood. No one is superior. No one is better. All are equal in the sight of God. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is the one that established nations. God is the one that establishes the time of nations. That they should seek God and find their way towards him. It's interesting, Paul actually used some of the quotes from some of their philosophers in this passage. Again, spoke their language, identified with them. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul did not console them, conjole them. God, Paul did not tell them, oh, you're just fine. Now is the time to repent. And he points him to Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. The victory over sin and death. There was something more than just attaining knowledge and satisfying sensual desire. There was a Savior. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 and 4, and then 7 and 8, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Verse 7 and 8. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. A few weeks ago, Rick Sherman preached on David 
And when David was confronted with his sin, he didn't say, well, God, that Bathsheba was so good looking. Why'd you put her there? Or, you know, God, Bathsheba's the one that tempted me. No, what did David say? God, only you have I sinned against. My sin is against you. You know, it's real easy, especially in today's day and age, with the click of a push of a button, a click of a screen, to go places we should not go, to see things we should not see. But it's easy to just, well, it's not that bad. I'm really, it just, you know. It was life-changing to me when I read this verse, these verses, that my sin was rejection of God and the Holy Spirit in my life. It's serious. We'd like to condemn the LGBTs and accept our immorality in our hearts. For whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. And you know what? It may not just be lust of the flesh. It might be a pride. It might be unforgiveness. It might be bitterness that we're harboring. It might be power, money that we depend on. If it's against God, we are rejecting the Holy Spirit for victory in our life. We're rejecting, disregarding the one who died for us and the one who rose in victory to give us victory. God calls on all of us, all men, to repent. I don't have answers this morning of how we live in this culture the day-to-day, the every situation that we get into. Just a few closing points. First of all, God is the authority. He determines right and wrong. He determines morality. Not man. God. Man's constant default is to determine his own morality, his own right and wrong. Be wary of that. Watch for your blind spots. And when things go bad, we want to blame someone else. And I know it's a cliché, But Jesus loved the sinner, but hated the sin. Maybe there's so much truth in that, that's why we've turned it into a cliche. Do we love the sinners? Jesus died 
to pay the wages of sin and death, of sin. And he arose to give us victory over sin. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us and sanctify us as we continue to yield to him. And lastly, God has not called us to save a culture, but to save sinners. And that doesn't mean we aren't involved in our culture. That doesn't mean we aren't, you know, we live in a unique situation of of having freedom of, of speech and freedom to vote and freedom to influence our government. But let's never lose sight that our purpose is to take the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Let's encourage each other. Let's pray for each other. It's things we have not faced before. Let's be honest. It's a situations that those that have gone before us, at least in, in, in our local time, did not face. We need God's spirit. We need his, the entire counsel of his word to lead us and guide us. Let's pray. Lord, I just... Uh, You know, we have lots of questions. We have lots of concerns. We're confused. We want things to be right. And Lord, we live in a broken and dying world. And you are not a respecter of sin. First of all, Lord, let us confess our sin. Let us realize that our sin is not towards our husband or wife or employer or employee or neighbor. It's against you, the one who died for us. Lord, could we go forth with the power of the Holy Spirit to live the life you've called us to live, that we could seek you for our everyday situations in life that we run into, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us words to say. Lord, that we would not back down from the truth, but we would share the truth in love. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.